Anthony, thank you so much for joining me on the Green Techpreneur podcast today. I wanted to speak to you because as, as the founder of Green Deck, you help renewable energy companies find funding and develop their projects. And as we all know, we're living in a very challenging time right now when we're headed towards the recession. We've got a massive energy crisis. We've got a drought crisis and uh companies just really desperately need help with developing their their renewable projects getting those off the ground society needs help <laughs> governments need help right and you kind of tie a few different strands together um could you maybe just share a little bit about why you why you entered into this industry well, think, and the role that you play that what you're saying to start with, if I talk into uh, what we need and where the where the sort of where we're getting to societally, is that there's huge potential for growth and uh, improving the world in general, and it's needed uh, in, in sustainability and renewables. So, I studied mechanical engineering as a master's a long time ago. I'm 40 now, um, uh, but then ran a vodka company for seven years, which I started while I was at university, and that was great fun, but not really what I wanted to do. And I always wanted to go into sustainable energy. And so I've been uh, banging my head against the industry now for, for 12 years in different forms and structures, having run my own businesses. But I think it's not so much uh, the world needs as opposed to there's so much opportunity. It's a case of just putting people together and making it work. Uh, and with any sort of project development or, or technology development or funding or anything else, it's all these uh, disparate parts that you can bring together to create value and, and make things work. So mm. that's in delivering my own projects, which I've done in the past, that's in helping technology secure funding that's helping people tell a story differently or helping them to uh, focus on uh, sort of more sustainable business models that'll work for a given business um, I've got a client in Zimbabwe who's got a 45 megawatt solar plant and they had thought they had everything lined up but they just weren't thinking in terms of what the investor might need or how to properly structure the investments themselves and how to best look at it and now now we have a, a good offer on the on the table and it's looking like it'll go ahead but uh, in general, uh, I think just trying to help people uh, within the sustainable agenda is is really important. So yeah. Hopefully make money out of some things, but a lot of it's just helping people get there. So, Absolutely. It's uh, something I've seen time and again, you know, is that starting a, a sustainable project or, or, or company is like trying to push a giant boulder up a mountain. <laughs> <laughs> and there there are just so many you know it's so challenging and investors can be so impatient when it comes to the second funding round they want to see all that revenue there but you know realistically you're entering a new market in some cases you're even building the market right and um yeah it's a challenge and it it takes a village to make it actually happen so i just want to kind of hit pause though on this part of the discussion because you said something very interesting i want to go back to you ran a vodka company yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, so brand of vodka which i i, I did for seven years uh, and i started with a good friend of mine and my brother joined in shortly after we started and at peak we were employing 36 people and selling vodka in china we were selling across the east coast main cities so uh, beijing shanghai shenzhen di just outside of hong kong um, and we employed 36 people selling vodka to sort of A-list clubs in China. So weird and wonderful business. I was running mostly ops in the UK. Um, and yeah, 
it was a fascinating and interesting time, but it wasn't really where my heart was. Mm. So it was a good experience learning how to run a business and how to make sure everything works. How, it, did you, uh, how, how did you get into that? I started a business, so <laughs> went out, raised some money, had a crazy love of vodka. Yeah, uh, well, we originally had a business plan for um, essentially we had access to the lawyer in Scotland who had created 24 hour licensing for Scotland. And via her, we had the ability for a 24 hour delivery license of alcohol in the UK, the first people to do that. And as students, we understood the student market would be a potentially useful breakpoint to deliver 24 hour alcohol because they said partying late and less less constrained working hours. And uh, we wanted to raise uh, 2 million uh, to start doing delivery off the back of mopeds, starting in Newcastle, Manchester and London uh, to the student world. And within that, we had our own brand of booze, uh, an alcohol pop and a vodka. And we raised 200 grand, scrapped everything else and focused on the alcohol pop and the vodka. Alcohol pop uh, was a mistake because the, uh, the, the market leaders at the time, every time we sold into a venue, they just crashed the price and kicked us out. And we couldn't get we couldn't get to high enough volume to make it work. The vodka, the vodka was doing the vodka was interesting and that that worked eventually. It worked really well when we got to Asia because it was a much less um saturated market. Mm. So we made more money and it cost us less to get there. So that was good. So you got a bit of a, a Forrest Gump life story going on <laughs> <laughs> from vodka yeah, well, then, then, I, then I tried selling. to then I then I then I took a bit of technology which I was working on from university. Uh, and managed to get the university to sign off the IP rights um, jointly to, to this project I was working on. And that was in 2008, which was just sort of mid-credit crunch time um, when my own vodka business failed, sadly. We had two, three offers on the company, but they shit forgot, uh, they kept getting withdrawn essentially because of the credit crunch and businesses and funds having to support their own uh, their own businesses. We also made some silly mistakes in how we grew the company and we needed the money to come in. If we grown it a bit more organically or a bit more sensibly, uh, we would still be around. So plenty of mistakes were made, but nonetheless, credit crunch did not help. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and it was yeah. a fantastic learning experience, I guess. One way of putting it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so, and then, then, then went into uh, trying to commercialize some uh, construction technology. Uh, but it turns out that 2008 uh, wasn't a very good time to encourage construction businesses to uh, invest in new technologies. Um, so despite having a very uh, sexy bit of tech, um, no one wanted to touch it because there was no investment into uh, property development at the time. The whole world went kaput. And then I tried to get some work in a fund in sustainability, but had no financial background, didn't have a degree in economics and hadn't worked in a bank. So I set up my own business, uh, installing solar PV, solar thermal, biomass, heat pumps, unfloor heating and other ancillary technologies off the back of a guy called Andy Buchan who was the, he wrote the Green Deal uh, for the government at the time. Uh, and he had something called the Efficient Energy, um, Cotswold Efficient Energy Center, which was a fantastic uh, installer of renewable energy technologies on the domestic and, and commercial side. So we sort of mirrored his business uh, around from Vista, um, set up a team, did installs, became MCS accredited for different technologies. And at the same time, I ran a sister company, which was really just me, uh, delivering utility scale developments. So we're doing planning uh, and development for solar and wind in the UK under joint venture. Uh, and then that had some success. Um, we delivered a decent sized site down in Cornwall, which is, is a big fund called Bluefield. And it's their, their highest yielding site because it's just so far south, the eastern, south-western UK. 
Mm. Uh, and that was all sorts of trials and tribulations. I remember we had to go back into planning twice because uh, one of the planning officers thought, so you're looking, you're looking down into the valley and at the bottom of the valley is where the solar would be. And you have to have visual impacts and how that works. So, you know, if, if, if two people, uh, it's an eyesore for them or it ruins an area of outstanding beauty, you can't build there. It's, it's gotta be sensitively built. And there was a museum up on the hill, which is a converted church. And one of the councillors uh, who votes essentially on, on, on whether it gets planning or not, thought mistakenly that from this museum, you could see the solar farm. And they're like, no, we can't build it, it's gone. And it nearly got kicked out until one of the one of the other council members just just before they cancelled it and said, "Look, it's not kind of chance." Said, "Look, let's just wait a month, let's postpone things, go and check it out, and then we'll vote again next next month." Thank God he said that because if he hadn't said that, we would have been kicked out and had to appeal, and it would have been a nightmare. So this guy, one guy, said that changed the entire process of the project. Mm -hmm. uh, we then took them on a bus trip, showed them it was absolutely fine. And the next next week, we got the yes. And I remember being in the car park, sitting in my car, having. Taking two years to get this first big project, we needed the money for the business, and just like ah, shouting and got some really weird looks. But I was just delighted. It was a very, very happy moment. <laughs> oh, so it's amazing how it all can, you know, hang on one person, one decision. Oh, crazy. Yeah. I think it's a bizarre, bizarre thing. I mean, that's the same in all the world. Mm. You take take something to someone uh, who's could be the perfect investor, but they've had a bad day, or you've you've had a bad day, and you present things wrong and yeah 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 so, so what, what, what have you seen um uh in terms of uh, the struggles i suppose that that these companies renewable energy companies or, or projects go through well what are some common themes that you well, see that people do wrong and, and ways they can improve for project development, which is tend to be where I, I, I sit in most of the time. So there is, I do a bit of work with technology. Most of the time I'm looking at developing projects. So that's the solar farm, wind farm, a battery site, uh, energy from waste project. So we're talking about utility scale, energy production, or, or the infrastructure around them. Um, but you need, you need to have four things lined up uh, and you also need to de-risk the project as much as you can. The investors are looking at it in terms of how do we, how do we look at this to uh, get it past our debt providers and to get it onto the past the board. So that's all about taking as much risk off the table as you can. Uh, so you need to firstly have the land in place and the, the sort of agreements for the land. You need to have the proven energy resource, which is going to be the sun, the wind, uh, the supply of the waste for an energy from waste plant, uh, the connection points um, in particular for batteries, which is a, a very separate and bizarre market. Um, then you need to have the build permits uh, and you need the grid connection. And once you've got those four things, uh, then essentially you've got, you've created value. And from now on in, it's pretty much plain sailing, relatively speaking. Then it's just engineering and construction, which isn't risk uh, by comparison to the early stages. Mm. So uh, a lot of it comes down to making sure those parts are done really well. Uh, you've got good consultants or good advisors who understand the local market properly and you can deliver. So uh, for example, in Zimbabwe, I had no chance of getting those things through planning. Um, because you have to be politically connected to understand the sort of the grounds, whereas the guys who developed it, he was an ex-politician, understood the market well, and managed to deliver the project. But he didn't understand the finance and the risk side of it. Um, so it's all uh, part and parcel. There's uh, some clients we've got in uh, Holland, and they're doing geothermal development. So uh, taking hot water out of the ground, drilling down two kilometers, bringing the hot water up and using that to space heat buildings. So that's a lot of greenhouses, uh, McDonald's's largest chip manufacturer in Europe will use their water to 
preheat the boiling of the potatoes. So all sorts of fun use cases, mm. but lots of power. Um, uh, but these guys came out of the oil and drilling sector. So they had huge expertise in how to make sure this works and to de-risk it. And therefore presenting that to the investor market um, was key in terms of showing they could deliver and therefore they're investable. Mm. Again, it's just this so, deep so stuff. So it's really showing that, that expertise that you need to, to de-risk whatever it is that, that you're trying to do and having local people who have local knowledge Exactly. Uh, local connections and local knowledge of how how to get those permits and what's and, needed and specific tech uh, technological knowledge as well so it's local knowledge as well as the technological technical knowledge uh, mm -hmm. and once you put those two together they're quite potent so it's just a case of making sure that all happens and what type of clients do you typically deal with which uh, geographies or stages of business growth um geographies vary so i've got clients in greece the uk spain italy zimbabwe uh, Holland, I've mentioned the US, uh, Latin America, all over. I've got nothing in China at the moment. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly, some clients in India. Um, so we're not. It's it's now a truly global market. So I originally focused purely on the UK, having had my experience there. But in 2016, there were very very subsidy cuts, which essentially killed the industry um, ahead of its time. And it's now we're slowly building back up again to the UK now being a sort of hot property again, mm -hmm. um, without subsidies, which is fantastic. Um, but as a result, then you start looking much more globally. So there isn't really uh, a geography that doesn't get covered. I mean, Mexico, for example, is a tough one because the government doesn't really want foreign investment going into renewable energy infrastructure. So markets like that, you can't really touch, but then no one can touch. Mm. Um, but for example, South Africa has just opened up uh, and made their power markets available to anyone. So suddenly you don't have to be an energy producer uh, or a generator to, you don't have to be a licensed generator in order to produce power which suddenly means you can build at large scale in the industry. So it, there's no one country that's limited. There's the whole world we can look at. Mm -hmm. And the investors I have on the book are, you know, I've got 400 plus investors. So each of those have a different specification, different needs, and therefore we can cover pretty much any, any geography as well. So there isn't a limitation uh, because it's now a global market, which is great. So That's fantastic. Uh, um, and how did you, I guess as someone who's, being in this sector who has a large network, um, I imagine you can see what where progress is being made with renewable energies. Definitely. So what, from your perspective, where do you think um, there's a lot of potential, I guess both, both the geography, but also the type of renewable energy? I think, uh, I hope we'll see a bigger upsurgence in concentrated solar power. Um, because when you store the heat in liquid salts, um, you can run it for an extra four, five, eight hours, potentially almost get 24 hour power generation, which can be hugely effective in high solar yield places. So from Spain South. Um, so as a technology, I think it's fantastic. Um, solar with battery, uh, wind with battery, anything with batteries really, really helps the market. Uh, and I think we can get to 80% um, renewables deployment uh, without base load power, for example, biomass or energy from waste or or uh, advanced geothermal where you're taking electricity as opposed to just heat out. There's a whole load of base technology to work there in terms of base load power. Sorry to explain, you've got base load power, which is something that generates power 24-7, like a nuclear power station. And then you've got intermittent power, like wind and solar, which is only going to create power when the wind blows and when the sun shines. And then the batteries work to balance the load on those intermittent powers so you can essentially use them for a lot more of the power but you still need base load to cover uh and build sort of the power markets around 
so it's how, how you balance those things together I, um, i've actually never heard of concentrated solar power which you can did you say you can liquidify yeah so essentially you've got a whole lot That's of mirrors fascinating. Uh, lots of mirrors which either point into a central point or they've got a, a, a bar which is they're running into convex mirrors and you, you use the sun's heat to heat up a, a solution that solution you then run uh into a, a steam generator so you create steam and then you run through a turbine to create power um but that solution could be run into salts uh so essentially you get more it's a higher specific heat capacity so more energy can go into a salt a rock essentially than you can into water so you can hold more energy in it uh, and so you can have this sort of tank if you like of, of liquid salts or not quite magma but it's that kind of idea um, wow. <laughs> uh, and it's because is just a liquid uh, mineral uh, and it sits there gets hotter and hotter and you can hold it in the tank and then when you want the heat you you draw the heat off and put it through your steam turbine uh, which allows you to get more power off that's that that's one i actually haven't heard of before concentrated yeah. solar power i i yeah it's just it's fascinating to me there's there's so there are so many different ways i guess that we can harness the elements right and and actually create energy using using what we already have without having to take it out of the ground oh really there's so many fantastic ways of doing it yeah. uh, you can you can take the energy out of the ground sustainably uh, geothermal is a lovely example of that so that's true <laughs> <laughs> So much is possible. I just feel like, uh, you know, humans, we're, we're these in incredible, incredibly smart sort of beings, right? I, we, we can we can make anything happen. Um, so I, I believe it's absolutely possible to, to switch to running the world using fully sustainable sources. But uh, I guess it's just a question of building momentum, like continuing to build momentum, but also building these large networks, which you do, of people who come together to make it happen. Because like, as, as I was saying earlier, it's the, the picture of the boulder. <laughs> you need a lot of, you need, you need a great collaboration and yeah. you know, bring a lot of different pieces together to make it happen. What's lovely now is the boulder's already running down the hill a bit. So a, a lot of this is just getting more people to put on the, put sort of push the boulder and, and getting obstacles out of the way. Mm. Uh, we already have the technologies we need to deliver. There is so many more fantastic technologies coming out into the market. Yeah. Uh, one of my clients, uh, is working with a, a licensee on how to, on a license basis to separate methane, which is fantastic fuel, terrible for environment, even worse if you can't burn it. Um, it's really, really bad uh, uh, sort of greenhouse gas. Um, and they separate it into hydrogen, fantastic fuel, four times hotter than methane. Uh, if you put it through an electrolyzer, it just creates water and electricity, fantastic stuff. Same, same thing when you burn it. Um, and the sequestered carbon they're creating is graphene. And graphene is this bonkers, wonderful material, 10 times more conducted than copper. A single molecule layer could hold a football, like so bonkersly strong. You could 3D print uh, electric circuit boards onto T-shirts and the ink would be stronger than the underlying T-shirt. You could use it as uh, uh, a superconductor at room temperature if you can get the they've, they've shown it can work, but they haven't quite managed to get the dislocation right. But there's uh, incredible properties there. Um, the biggest use case is in concrete, where you can add it to concrete as an additive, parts per thousand, so small amounts. And you could get rid of uh, reinforcing steel, for example, or you can use 40% less concrete because it's that much stronger, 40% less. That use case alone, if it was fully deployed industry, would create a 2% saving globally on carbon. That's how big this, the cement industry is. It's like the sort of 4 to 6% of the global output of CO2 is based on 
the cement industry, mainly for curing the limestone, which is where you heat the limestone up mm-hmm. and then it's ready to be used in cement, which is huge energy usage to do that. And so if you can use less uh, concrete, you can use a lot less carbon. And so there's some really fun things going on with what they can do. And they could add it into roads to make the roads longer lasting. You could add it to tires and make the tires long lasting uh, uh, and, and, and thinner and stronger and lighter and all these things. It's a real, really fun, fun thing to play with. So that's just one of the, the many fantastic technologies we've got coming through to market. Yeah, no, it, it's amazing. And it, it definitely gives me so much hope as well in the future. And, and I think as, as difficult as things are becoming now with, with the drought and the energy crisis, I also feel like we as a society, we need to experience a bit of pain. Yeah. to feel the sting start to feel the sting you know people's energy bills are going way out of whack you know people are uh what was it ten thousand or fourteen thousand people in france had to be uh you know relocated because of the fires you had 300 people in portugal dying and it's uh, yeah, and yeah. It's, it's very difficult and tragic to see obviously here in the uk as well right that the parks the green parks that they look like the savannah now yeah. um you know hampstead heath has got this tall uh wheat like looking yeah. <laughs> like a plane somewhere in the yeah. savannah <laughs> At all the parks, yeah. Greenwich, you know, all, all, the, all the major parks, they're yellow, not green. Yeah. And um, it, it's something that I think we, we just haven't seen. And um, my biggest worry when, uh, uh, obviously, outside of the, the tragic humanitarian aspects of the Ukrainian invasion uh, from Russia was the, uh, it took the whole world away from the sustainable agenda because suddenly I was worrying about the invasion. And I thought that was uh, really going to set back uh, what we're trying to achieve here. But as it turned out, it worked it's actually getting creating huge impetus for long-term planning. So Germany, for example, increasing what they're doing, they're going to not um, mothball their, their nuclear uh, fleet quite so quickly. Um, there's a whole load of implications that are, are meaning long-term planning for renewable power has really stepped up as a result of these high fuel costs. Um, if you look at the America bill, which has just been passed, the anti-inflation bill, which is a wonderful bit of uh, flammery, uh, flim flam uh, is all about sustainability. There wasn't much inflation stuff in there, but great. Um, a little smaller than the, the bill they originally intended, but nonetheless uh, very effective. Uh, but the the impact that can have in the US uh, is is huge. Um, so really exciting to see these things come forward as a result of um, the world suffering and showing that we can address some of these issues. Um, yeah, that the. It's a really good point. I'm really glad actually that you you brought that up because I did want to ask you where you see, where you see things going. And it's nice that there's a bit of positive news to share because that was a concern, right? Oh, what's going to happen now? Um, so it does seem like for, for, for some governments are stepping up now, right? Um, but then there's the investor side of things where I do know that the market sentiment has shifted a little bit and people are feeling a bit more cautious um have what have you seen happening there how, and how do you see these two different elements of governments with, with their long-term planning putting more emphasis on sustainable solutions but then the investors right now um feeling a bit cautious and a bit scared about putting their money into these projects well it's interesting i see the reverse actually since about halfway through the first um corona uh, shutdown so from sort of uh easter two years ago mm-hmm. So we've seen a huge influx in money coming into the market. Yes. Um, and that's driven up uh, prices, which has driven more people into development. So we're seeing, certainly on the project side, so delivering sustainable assets, 
a huge influx and growth. There's a big, big growth story now. So it's not a case of uh, uh, investor sentiment is quiet. It's been one of the most high-performing sectors uh, globally, renewables at the moment. And it's very much part of a super cycle. So all of the policy points that are coming out and increasing are only helping that as well. Obviously, the COP uh, agendas are really furthering that too, making it every year instead of every three years. Uh, we've already seen uh, New Zealand in 2018 banning all offshore, new all offshore rights. Uh, we saw Quebec this year in April ban all new licenses and in three years' time roll back all hydrocarbons uh, in terms of uh, oil and gas, which for Canada, who's one of the top five uh, oil and gas producers globally, is an incredible thing to state. I mean, that's that's it's huge. Um, we've also seen... Uh, other countries commit to it too uh not many but it's just the, the ball's rolling and that's just uh you know, it's the carrot and stick so stopping the production but also critically is also keeping hold of your energy security and making sure that the lights don't go out if the lights go out then people are going to go back to coal because it's a quick and easy form of energy so we have to address both of those so then you have to have sensible policies that match that too uh and we're seeing more and more of that coming such as the american uh recent uh, policy enactment. Um, so there's all sorts of fun things happening. And I, I aside from being an, a hopeful optimist uh, uh, forever, uh, essentially, I'm seeing, as I work on the forefront of all these technologies, I'm seeing deployment rates raise uh, quickly and sustainably, uh, sorry, continuously. So we're seeing more people want to do renewables in, in more markets and more money coming into it, which means the whole thing's just growing and growing. Um, the battery market in the UK alone, a project uh, pre-construction is now worth 40% more for the same project a year ago now. This just means more people are coming to the market. They're demanding less in, uh, sort of returns on it because the money's becoming safer, it's better understood. Uh, it's just continuation of the same. So uh, so, so you haven't seen a, a, a change in investor sentiment this year because of the, you know, the, the impact of the, the crisis, the, the war, the recession? There was there was certainly a slowdown uh, on some sentiment, but because the renewable energy and power generation is countercyclical, it's not a, it doesn't go up and down like stocks do. We always need energy; it's always going to become a production, and energy demand is, is typically going up anyway. Uh, and also with the increase in power demand, so power pricing has gone up. It means there's actually a greater demand uh, and a greater return on investment in sustainability or in renewable energy power projects. So, whilst the initial Innovation uh, certainly caused a bit of a stop on things. Uh, two months later, people realised that actually it's it's in some ways helpful uh, because it's going to drive up those power prices. And certainly for the medium term to short term, those power prices are going to stay high. At least that's the expectation for the next couple of years. Um, so that only helps. Uh, and I've only seen more, uh, more. There's not enough projects for the investors that are there, which is going to drive more people to do more projects. Uh, and and that's that's fantastic news as far as I can tell. Wow, that that is that is really fantastic news because I know I mean as a from a broader in the broader perspective there has been a shift in in investor sentiment, investors being a little bit more cautious. So it's actually it's really encouraging and really good to know that in the renewable energy sector, in some ways the opposite has happened where they see so much demand right yeah. for 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 new solutions that. It, yeah. UBS, for example, they they advise, or last year or two years ago even, they're advising their uh, their private wealth clients, so they're very wealthy clients, and they manage various portfolios for them. Uh, as an example, they were saying that the renewable energy 
is where you should invest. Not because you like sustainability, not because you believe in the environment, because it's outperforming everything else. And that that's the perfect news story. We don't you want the whole uh, industry to stand up on its own two feet and then run, um, and not need uh, not need the sort of the, the the green agenda to to push it. Obviously, for me, the green agenda is critical. But if we can make the whole world see it, and not just those who really understand the green agenda, then then we'll really get momentum. I mean that that's that's the dream, right? To be in that place where we have that market tipping point. We have it. It's already it's happening. It's already here. That's that's really great news. Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> That that boulder is starting to roll downhill now. So yeah, the, the, the boulder comes in when you don't need. So obviously, government policy and everything else is really, really important to deliver things. Both not just for uh, feed-in tariffs, where you get money paid money to produce power sustainably, in addition to the value of the power. Um, it's also planning policy. It's uh, grid connection policy, and how the DNOs, the district network operators for the power grid work, uh, and how how to deliver stuff. So you always need support from a government to make it happen. But right now, uh, you can build solar in the UK purely based on the current market pricing. And that's based on before Ukraine happened. So mm. you can build these without any support and they make money. So it's it's already happening. The ball, that ball is rolling. So uh, if you can plug it, if it makes more sense to put solar on your house than not to put solar on your house, because you're going to live in the house for six years, then suddenly the world gets covered in solar. Mm. Uh, there are businesses out there that will fit solar onto your house for free and give you reduced price renewable power. And this is for commercial, industrial and residential properties in exchange for the value of the power, which is exported and also the money you're paying them. So you're going to buy power from them for less than market. You're going to be buying and using green power and they're going to use your roof to export power to the grid. And the money they make from that is enough to actually build these things and make them work in the UK. Mm. And we're currently looking at the same model in Sweden as well. Uh, and also I'm looking at it in um uh southeast europe as well so there's lots of lots of fun places to play with in there and there's interest in all those markets wow. there's a developer in the uk who've got 300 megawatts which is uh i guess 180 million pounds worth of uh cost to build it on rooftop solar already uh and that's just one portfolio so there's lots of cool things happening there wow yeah so so is that you know rooftop solar is that sort of one of the technologies that you see really coming to market um in, in a much bigger way in the next five to ten years yeah i mean it's already it's already in market it's proven it's one of the ones as i say like like ground mount solar at a good scale that works it's already uh it's already being supplied and operating without the need for government support and subsidies so it's just mm -hmm. a case of deploying and rolling it out and as the cost of solar goes down uh so you can travel further up uh, away from the equator uh, where the solar yields are low and lower and still get these built out. So we're just trying to see if it works in Sweden, which is a little bit higher up, and it may well do. It certainly works in the UK already. And of course, further towards the equator, you can you can build solar and uh, and connect it through to the UK. There's projects in Morocco, Marrakesh. Uh, in Morocco, it's not Marrakesh, sorry. In Morocco, where there's a grid connection already being built from Morocco to the UK. Wow. They've already got. Yeah. How does that actually work? How do you build a grid connection for solar power that connects the UK to Morocco? Very large cable, which you drop in the ocean, basically. So same <laughs> as same as um. Yeah. Wow. That's that's it's actually amazing. Crazy big cables that go through the grounds. Yeah. Well, well, I I feel very uh, inspired actually speaking to you and, and learning about 
all of these these projects that are underway and and just the fact that the it's a it's a booming sector renewables are a booming sector investor sentiment is strong it continues to be strong and um you know within hopefully within the next decade or so we'll have some uh some real serious solutions ruled out on a much much larger scale than than what we see today that can actually help to stop and prevent a type of crisis that we're experiencing I hope so. right I now think- I'm not sure we can prevent the current crisis. Um, no, yeah. making it not so bad. So <laughs> yeah. it can get a lot worse. So it's trying to make sure it doesn't get too much worse. Um, yeah, yeah. And hopefully, if we if we if we do really well, we're able to backtrack a little bit and you know, give mm-hmm. give the earth a chance to recover. Yeah, yeah. So so we've talked, um, you know, a lot about the opportunities that are out there and the 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 key factors that companies need to have in place, I guess, to attract investors and to develop their project. Um, is there anything else that stands in the way as an obstacle, let's say, that that you face when you are helping these, uh, you know, renewable energy projects find funding and develop? Yeah, I think that goes back to the uh, the risk uh, and the appetite. So it's just trying to make sure that it's being presented well and de-risking the project as much as you can. Um, a lot of it comes down to the message and story. Um, making sure it's being presented in the best way possible or you understand where your weaknesses are and you can say, look, I'm not good at this. We need to get this part in. We've done everything else um, because an investor uh, will know or understand where those weaknesses are or are likely to. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's always worth understanding your own strengths and weaknesses so you can apply those. Um, do you do you have any tips for startups um, You know, around getting their messaging right? Yeah, I th- uh, that's a tough one. I think it depends on your audience so you should always know your audience and have them in mind yeah. so they may know the technology real but they may not so assume that they probably don't uh, and pitch it to them in a, in a simple and, and clear way um so don't think you're presenting to your fellow board members or presenting to your granny uh it's somewhere in the middle where you've always got to be mindful of, of who the people are and what the message is you're trying to get across keep it simple don't overcomplicate things uh, if you have too much, too many words on an investment memorandum, then you're going to lose everyone because the yeah. investors are looking at you know 10, 15 of these a day, and if it's all worded, they're just going to skip it and not even read it. So mm-hmm. keep it simple, keep the messaging clear, uh, and don't make it too wordy or too many pages. If you can't do it in fourteen pages, you shouldn't be doing it at all, really. Maybe mm-hmm. less. So. That's great advice, and I, I can see how it's just it's also just so valuable for these startups to have an outside. Uh, you know, outside set of eyes who can come and and look at what they're doing, um, who, where you're not kind of lost in the detail, and you can help them draw out the most. These are these are the most important points. These are the these are the boxes you need to take, yeah. um, to, to show the investors. Well, so, yeah, I mean, as, yeah. a, as a broker and looking at that, I, I engage with the clients. So being able to add value and uh, help streamline the process and help with some of the editing on on investment memorandums and and, and modeling as well. Uh, it it really helps having a uh, an un, well relatively unbiased. My my interests are all very much aligned, but uh, to try and sort of shake down what's what's really needed and how to how to deliver it. So um, what's let let's let's zoom back out into the big picture of what you're doing and where you're going. Uh, where do you where do you hope to be within the next five to ten years? Um, I think. Well, it goes back to where I want to, what I want to try and achieve in the next 20 years um, and the sort of pathway to get to that. Uh, so 
about four or five years ago, I was thinking about how I can have the greatest impact. Uh, sort of looking, I read an article on Elon Musk and his secret source uh, on, a, on a blog called Wait But Why, which is a really good long form blog, highly advised reading through. But it just looks at how, what is it that I can do to leave the world a better place? Mm. Um, so how do I how do I put the loose seat of the world down before I walk out the room uh, and leave it better for everyone else? And it's, uh, I understand renewables. I understand uh, sort of the financial markets enough, not not a huge amount, but enough to to, to get by. Uh, and we live in a capitalist society where you need money to invest into things. Uh, I think charities, NGOs have a huge role to play in our society, but they need continual investment or to continually raise money in order to have that impact. Um, whereas a business or a company, which can have huge impact as well, and positive society, B Corps and further, they still have shareholders. So the money disappears out the company. So you put money in, but then the money goes out again as well. Yeah. Um, so putting those things together, my simple thought is to create a, a utility, sustainable utility that owns renewable assets, but also has no shareholders. So essentially it's funded uh, by a philanthropic donation. Uh, but then it's also a commercial venture that's for profit for itself, which means that very quickly you can have a scaling factor uh, that grows the business. So uh, let's say an animal business might double every 10, 20 years, whatever it is, if it's doing very well, this could double in half that time or less because you're not paying any dividends out. Mm. So let's say it's investing into solar, winds, any technology anywhere in the world, wherever it makes the best returns to just try and get more renewable deployed. And it's competing in a competitive market. So other utilities or other project owners will, will put their power pricing in there. So they'll constantly reduce down the price against uh, for sort of for people on the ground uh, and also be able to grow and cover the world faster and quicker. So within two, three generations, you can have a entity that is self-owned, is investing into technology, new technologies, as well as uh, deploying globally across markets in the most efficient way possible to create renewable power. Um, and so in order to set that up, uh, there's a few things I need to do all along the way, uh, part of which is uh, improving my political capital, which is doing interviews like this and generally uh, getting onto different parts. So that's uh, campaigning, uh, just spreading the good word of, of renewables uh, and uh, also on the economic side, continuing my relationships with investors and making sure that people understand what we can do and how we can work together, talking potentially to uh high net individuals and trying to get them on board but also building up my own political capital in the economic sense so that's going through uh for example going to davos or other places there where we can try and present uh, and 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 get the world out so i think in the next five years uh i need to obviously continue to close transactions for clients and get bigger and more exciting ones as we go forward um but also uh build some of that uh forward momentum to be able to firstly seed seed it myself with money so i need to earn some good money for that and also then bring in other parties and try and build that uh facility or uh structure to make that happen yeah. uh, and it's all working backwards from you know for example in 10 15 years time if that's when the nexus and starting point is i need to achieve a lot of things before that so it's all the build up towards getting there that's an incredible vision <laughs> <laughs> I, I like that, that you're actually looking to not just say I'm going to create an impact within the industry that I'm in, but actually I'm going to change change the game a little bit, change the way things are done, the status quo, yeah. so that we can do this better and faster. And it's trying to take it out of, like we, so politics and development uh, societal is often in you know, four year stints. It's how long the government's in and then they get kicked out, someone else comes in. It's mm -hmm. very, very short term. 
Um, I think that's one advantage China has across a lot of other countries is they can take very long term views on how they develop things. Yeah. Um, and then uh, so so I think being able to create a an entity that can take the long view and really take a long view, so it can invest in things that don't necessarily have a high return but have a good impact or whatever it may be, um, means you can have such a great impact. And and this is something that I wouldn't be controlling. Like you can't. If I was to try as an individual try to control a business or an entity like this, it wouldn't work. So what I'm doing is trying to set it up and get the best people in it, and then then it goes. It doesn't need someone else to run it. It's not. Uh, it's not a. It's not a business that I'm. You're setting something up for the future or what it's going to be, not setting something up for me to make lots of money on, uh, and uh, time my name to. Uh, it's it's how how something can benefit everyone else. But then if you can use that same model uh, to blend into other societies and other other industries, I think you can have a huge impact going mm -hmm. further. So the closest I can think of is like housing associations, for example, where they're self-owned, the money gets replowed back into it. Yeah. They have a need to grow, but they also have an obligation to provide uh, the best economic value for their tenants too. So there's a balance there that they don't get to grow very fast, but they do have a good uh, commercial and uh, societal base to it. So if we can create something else that's also very, very commercial, but at the same time gets to replow that money and grow, then you, know, you can apply that to lots of different ways. Yeah, so so there is actually a company um, that comes to mind that, that has a structure uh, similar to this in place, and that's Ecosia, uh, who I've interviewed. Uh, they're the world's largest not-for-profit search engine. Have you heard of them? I haven't heard of them, no. Yeah, so so they, they plant trees, they have 15 million users, and they have set up their company uh, in such a way that it operates as a sort of not commercial not-for-profit. And it's impossible to sell the country, uh, the company, they've made it illegal to sort of protect it, protect it for, for years to come. And it's impossible, it's illegal to take profits out as well. So 100% of those profits, apart from the salaries, obviously. Yeah which they take out, go to solve the climate crisis. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, so they, that, they, then they, again, that's, that's not, that's a, a fundraising strategy to fund the climate crisis. So it's, it's a way of continually bringing money into this, into it. Yes. But it's not compounding the growth. So it may grow well, but the structure we're looking at here is one where all the money it makes and the better it does, the more impact it has and grow, grow, grow. So that scaling factor just, just goes through the roof. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but interesting to know that I haven't heard of Ecosia at all. And as a search engine, that sounds really powerful. Uh, Extremely powerful. They, they planted 153 million trees. That's a lot of trees. <laughs> That's a lot of trees. And in, in just one year, they planted 25 million trees. And yes, yeah, so if you haven't heard of them, I, I'm a big advocate for them because, <laughs> you know, not, not only is, am I so impressed with what they actually do, the structure that they've set up to, you know, it's so selfless to have created something so remarkable and yet for the founder to say i'm limiting my salary to this much yeah. and we're, we're just going to be putting the rest into planting trees and growing our company yeah. um uh, but yeah so yeah l look them up but they're great um yeah. but yeah I'll, i i do think that is that is that is we're going through a sort of societal change right now where, where it used to be very much companies are about profit now it's like oh companies are about Profit, but we also need to think about the environment. We also need to think about society, <laughs> right? Your well, model works. So my wife works in philanthropy. She's um, yeah. she runs the philanthropy service for Barclays Bank. Mm. Um, and the old model was you make all the money you can. You don't really 
uh, worry about the people who step on on the way. And then once you've made that money, you can do fantastic things philanthropically. Um, whereas the new the new guard, the next generation coming in, are not thinking that way. They're thinking, look, how do we do all of this aligned at the same time? You start from looking yeah. at people. And you can also have the philanthropic impact. So again, that shift is really happening. And we're seeing that in, in the next gen, essentially, of, of those money uh, in being inherited, thinking that way, uh, mm-hmm. compared to the, the historic way where it, it's, you know, you make your money at whatever cost and then you can do something with it. Yeah. As opposed to how, how can I make money, which is impactful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, before we wrap up, I just want to ask you, are there any um, mentors or people who have been really influential in helping you on this journey and helping you keep the vision, I guess, <laughs> for where you're going and, you know, push, pushing against the obstacles to keep moving forwards? Uh, I think certainly my various business partners along the way have taught me a huge amount. So that includes uh, the business of the vodka. Uh, my partner there was probably the best salesman I've met in my life. It was amazing to learn off. Um, then uh, I think uh, we had a, a very couple of very good partners in in the renewable energy business, which we started in 2010, which is the Efficient Energy Co. There's a guy called Oliver Dew, who's an MBA and engineer on the tools, who's fantastic. Andy Bucket himself and a, a lawyer called Andrew Darwin, who is a director of the business. All of those have learned a huge amount from. Uh, my current boss at UEnergy, who uh, back, backed me originally on the joint venture, he's one of the guys who funded us uh, in the development. So he, Jonathan Hall is fantastic. I've learned a huge amount from him. Uh, but I think one of the biggest impacts in my life has been my wife. Uh, so she's, she's, a, she's a trained executive coach more recently. Um, and as I mentioned, she's head of Flansbury Barclays Bank, but she's uh having someone who thinks that uh that well and that clearly is is a huge challenge in a relationship <laughs> when you're thinking a bit stupidly and uh it's very hard to take that advice in but uh when you can set the child aside and, and be a bit grown up about it it's also a huge potential for growth mm. she's been a wonderful uh engine in in how i see the world and how i see myself and trying to basically get out my own way all the time so that's been a, she's been a, a huge and incredible impact. Oh, that's, that's uh, amazing. Much to her difficulty. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's amazing, right? That's what partnership is about helping each other, helping exactly. each other grow. Exactly. And my, my father as well, is, 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 he passed away when I was 26. Uh, and I'll be, uh, he was in insurance. Uh, and I'll be fourth generation underwriting if I'd gone and followed, followed his suit. Uh, and whilst there's obviously lots of there's good and bad in all, all people, when you sort of take them off the pedestal and see them as humans, there's a lot of good in there, which I can emulate. Um, so uh, aside from the fact that I wish he had met my uh, my son and wife, there's a lot of stuff he's left over, uh, which I get to to use and try and emulate. Uh, and lessons from things he didn't do so well, which I can also try and emulate in terms of not doing them. But uh, yeah, a lot of, lot of interesting people who've influenced me. Um, but those are probably some of the keys. That's great. Um, and do you have a quote or, or a motto or, or something that, that a business mantra? Uh, I think do the hard things first uh, is is really key. Um, I think if you've got all these things in front of you, just think what's what's the, the difficult thing and what needs to get done that's holding you back mm. uh, and try and get into it from there. So um, I think there's yeah. so many things that, that get in our way when we're just staggering with uh what to do next uh, i think the most important thing is just to do the next thing 
Mm. So whatever's in front of you, just take that step and keep going. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, another question that I like to yeah. ask because be nice and, and look and enjoy yourself as well. And enjoy yourself. <laughs> <laughs> we only have one journey. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Um, what is something else I like to ask is what you do on a day off? Do you have any rituals for disconnecting? Um, because again, you know, as we all know you're an entrepreneur, I'm an entrepreneur. Uh, the green techpreneur is about entrepreneurs and we know that it's not an easy thing to do. And at any given point in time, you've got about 10, a list of 10 things that, you know, you need, you need to get done or on your mind. So it's so important to have some sort of a, uh, yeah, switch off, a way yeah. to switch off. One thing I've been quite good at is, is compartmentalizing. So I've got these two different roles and each of those have got different segments within it. So it's trying to uh, ignore the, do your best with everything you can do. But at the same time, when you're not doing it, just don't worry about it. It'll, it's there when you come back to it. It's not going to change. When you have the time for it, that's when you focus on it. But in terms of uh, sort of decompressing, then the day I've got a four-year-old son who's just gorgeous. So playing with him at the end of every day and then the morning is, is, a, is fabulous. Oh, that's great. Yeah, he loves trains. I love food, so we often go out to Borough Market on the train to, from London Bridge. Oh, that's uh, I also love to. I love to cook. I'm a massive feeder, so having uh, uh, people around for supper and, and creating and cooking is, is a huge pleasure for me. I did a cooking course a long time ago uh, for three months, uh, and have sort of played off that and continued to enjoy cooking. So, uh, otherwise, I really enjoy strategy board games. So. <laughs> Board game I play with some friends, but not that often. Maybe two or three times a year. Maybe because it takes an entire day to play. It takes an hour to set up, and then another eight to fourteen hours is our longest game to play a single game. And I'm on the edge of my seat the entire time, but it's great. There's all this interplay and huge political intrigue and building <laughs> armies and destroying each other and, and we drinking all the beer. So that's a that's a good day out. <laughs> that's great. That's great. Yeah, we, we all need that thing. I guess that that allows us to play, right? Yeah. Bring, bring brings out the child in us and yeah allows us to just turn off let go yeah and i think the the, the child in me is not never too far away so <laughs> <laughs> i can see that <laughs> uh, all right well um thank you so much for for taking the time to join me today a pleasure and yeah i hope to to catch up soon thank you look forward to it